I was seeking a way to use my talents and my skills and my money and my connections to make a greater difference in the lives of others. And I get so much fulfillment out of that. And now that I've been doing it for 15 years, even with the extreme pain that has come from it, I would do it all over again because it's just what I believe is the right thing to do. It's a life that I want to live. I don't, I don't really care to live a life that is centered around my own enjoyment or happiness. Welcome to Crazy Good Turns. We recognize and celebrate people who've done crazy good things for other people. I'm your host, Frank Blake. Today, we have as our guest, Catherine or Cat Hope. I won't begin to do justice to her background and experience other than to say she is one of the most effective, interesting, and resilient practitioners of Crazy Good Turns I've ever talked with. She's founded two incredibly successful nonprofits aimed at improving our correctional system, Prison Entrepreneur Program, and Defy Ventures. She's moved on from both and has now started a third, Hustle 2.0. Her efforts have improved the lives of thousands of incarcerated people and reduced recidivism rates. She's written a book, Second Chance, been named one of the 100 most creative people in business, received more awards than I have time to mention. Otherwise, I guess she hasn't done much. Kat, welcome to Crazy Good Turns. Thank you, Frank. I love your show, and I'm honored to be your guest. (laughs) Well, thank you. Before we get into the work you're doing, I'd like to ask a random biographical question. And I want to preface it by saying I have a particular interest in this question because over my time in business, I've noticed that some of the very best leaders were wrestlers. So I'd like to go back to the point in your life when you decided to become a high school wrestler. And by the way, the only girl on the team. What prompted that? It was an accident. I was hanging out with one of my girlfriends the night before. She had a crush on a boy on the wrestling team. She managed to talk me into showing up at wrestling practice And it was at seven in the morning and I wasn't thrilled to be there. And the first thing that the coach said to the boys was go warm up by running a mile around the track. And I was like, well, I am not going to sit here and just be a spectator. I might as well make the most of my time. So I got my butt up and ran around the track with them. And I'm not particularly fast, but I'm a decent runner. I probably came in halfway through the pack and the coach said, why don't you come in and stretch with us? So I did. And I was really weak at the time. It was my junior year of high school. I wish I had started my freshman year. And uh, anyway, I ended up staying through practice. My first year of wrestling is when I learned a whole lot about resilience because in that entire first year, I only scored two points one time in one match against a boy. And the rest of the time, I got my butt whooped and would go back to the girls locker room where I'd be the only person in there and would cry like a girl. (laughs) And I would decide I wanted to quit all the time. But I've learned that there's a big difference between wanting to quit and actually quitting. And I would just come back for more. And I'm glad that I did because I did a lot better in my second year. What kept you coming back? How did you decide that it was worthwhile and, and stick with it? That's a Good question. And I think it was just, I knew I could do better. 
I was getting humiliated, like stacked. I don't know what made me think that I could beat the boys, but I somehow deep down believed that if I wanted it, that I could actually achieve it. So although it was a very painful, physically painful and emotionally painful year, I believed that I had it in me. And that's something that my father instilled in me was that if I, if I wanted it, I could go get it. And so I, I guess I was just pathologically optimistic enough to believe that I could. And my second year, I did in fact come back and I had a winning track record with the boys. I had all of the off season to work out and to do pushups. I was doing a thousand pushups a day. I was doing, wow. you know, I was, I was training a lot harder than any of the boys were. And I was still less strong than they were, but I learned how to become a more technical fighter. And the lessons that I learned of scraping myself off the mat and when I thought I was done coming back for more has served me so well for the rest of my career I really credit my wrestling coach and my wrestling experiences with teaching me a great deal about resilience and then in the work that I do now also I every day I'm coming alongside underdogs who have been totally defeated and my job now is to shine them up and put them back in the fight. And even when they feel like they can't do it, I'm there to tell them that they can. And I lead the way by example. It is interesting because it is a trait. And whatever, whatever wrestling instills in you, as I say, I've seen it in any number of leaders in the business community. When you kind of get into their background, that uh, a lot of them were great, were dedicated wrestlers. So now I want to jump ahead a decade or so, and you're now 25, 26 years old, living in New York. You've got a great job in venture capital, uh, but you're also doing some side work to, to help incarcerated people in Texas. So tell us what was going on that time in, in your life, what you were doing, what was your day job, what was this other work, and, and how did that lead to a change in your life? I realized at such a young age that sometimes our possessions own us rather than us owning our possessions. And I just wanted to know what's the point of all this? What's the point of dying with a big fat pile of money? And so I went around asking every CEO that I encountered, every successful person I knew, because I wanted to know the answer for myself as I was seeking out the purpose of my life. I asked them, if you died today, why would your life matter? And I could see that maybe 75% of the people that I spoke with, they were shocked by the question and they didn't have an answer that seemed to satisfy them. And I could see that those who did seem fulfilled in their lives, it, it was because when the money that they were making was not just so that they could get another a bigger house or a better yacht or a younger wife or another escaped for this or that, but is because they were living a purpose-filled life and they were using their wealth very intentionally to create good in the world. So I was on a journey. I call in my book, I call this the journey of finding my generous hustle, how we can do good in the world, make money, but use our hustling skills to make a better contribution to the world. And so I was 
looking for that. And I got invited to prison and I never in a million years thought I would say yes to that. I was 26 years old. I was about as naive as could be when it comes to the world that I work in now in prisons. And my first reaction was no thank you. Because when I was 12 years old, a good friend of mine was brutally murdered. And I thought that anyone who was incarcerated was the scum of the earth and they could just rot and die in that place. I myself have been a victim of crimes. And so I didn't think my life would take that turn. And what was it that pushed that turn? What did you see? What did you experience? So I was in Manhattan having dinner with a JP Morgan executive, a woman who looked like me, but older. And she asked me, she said, haven't you had a second chance before? Haven't I been the beneficiary of so many mentors and great people who have walked with me through difficulties in life? And I was like, yes, of course I have. I've been so blessed with many opportunities and many second chances. And she helped me without judging me. She helped me to see the log in my own eye of how I could write off other people. Really, I didn't see people who were in prison as humans. I saw them as like wild caged animals. And she challenged me and she invited me to fly out to Texas. And this was in 2004 for a weekend in prison. And I turned my no into a yes. And that first weekend there, when I walked in, I was so fearful, terrified, and not expecting humans. And when I walked in and started speaking with incarcerated men and women, I felt so ashamed of my own heart and the way that I could completely write people off because of an experience of one that I had had. And the first person that I met in prison, his name was Johnny Taylor. And Johnny was 18 when he went to prison. And when I started to ask him about his backstory, something clicked in my mind since he was the first one that I met. Johnny's grandfather shot his father right in front of him when I think he was eight or 10 years old. And then around 11 or 12, he started selling drugs, got into a gang, and by 18, he was incarcerated. And I wish I could tell you that Johnny's story is an outlier, but about 90% of the people that I work with, and I've now, the programs I've started have worked and served more than 6,000 people. Probably 90% of them had a family member murdered or killed before they were 18 years old. Nearly all of them, like 98% of them, I would say, uh, grew up with gunshots going off in their neighborhoods every single day. Nearly every single one of them experienced violence in their homes. And most of them were abused physically, emotionally, many of them sexually. And none of this ever takes away or makes okay the crimes that they ended up committing. And I tell people, prison is important. If you want to hurt people, there's a place for you. And it's called prison. You get taken away from society. But what I started to realize even in that first visit at the age of 26 is that the way that we sentence in this country, in what is called the land of the free and the land of liberty and justice for all, when we are rich and white, the things that we can get away with are the sentencing disparities between white people and people who don't have economic resources or people who have a different skin color. 
It angers me. We are the only country in the world that issues life sentences to children on a routine basis. So many of the men and women that I work with were issued life sentences when they were 15 or 16 years old. I I was just in prison two weeks ago with a guy who was first incarcerated at the age of four for his mother's crime, but he was put in handcuffs and he was thrown in a jail cell alone at the age of four. His father handed him a smoking gun after he committed a murder when this guy's name is Freddie, when Freddie was five years old. And so many of the people that I serve, they never had a first chance. And I want them to have that chance. They are paying their debt to society. And I believe that all of us should get second chances. We pay the consequences and the prices for our actions. We do. They do. They pay their debt by serving time. But 95% of people who are incarcerated end up getting released. So even for people who are tough on crime, I definitely considered myself to be tough on crime. I'd rather now think of myself as being smart on crime because, yes, people should go to prison if they want to hurt other people. But 95% of them are coming home. They should be rehabilitated. It's called the field of corrections, and there's so little that we do to correct them. Anyway, a lot of things clicked in my mind on that first visit when I was 26 years old, and I saw things for the very first time through a different lens, through a humanizing lens. And the other thing that I realized about the people that I served is that not all of them are entrepreneurial But many, many people who are selling drugs or leading gangs share a whole lot in common with successful CEOs and entrepreneurs. And they were just using their hustling skills illegally. Major gangs are run by boards of directors and they have accountants and bookkeepers and they have margins that are way nicer than most of the businesses that you've run. There, there's some interesting <laughs> there's some interesting business studies on that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So I I asked the question, what would happen if these guys were able to transform their hustle from illegal into legal hustling? And at the age of 26, I was naive enough to believe that all things were possible. I think I'm still probably naive enough to believe that, but I was even more naive then. And I jumped ship from my fancy private equity job in New York, and I moved to Texas and started that first program, Prison Entrepreneurship Program, that 15 years later is still going. So pause a bit on that, because I think a lot of people, I speak for myself, out out of college, I did some work trying to help in prisons. And there's a, yeah, that's that's an important thing to do, and I can do that on the side, but I'm going to keep kind of middle of the path and do, you know, sort of more mainstream things. You went all in. You took your own money and quit your job and went down and did this full time, correct? Yes. Okay, well, so... That's another good question, because the way I tell my story, it sounds like just overnight, I was like, boom, leaving New York and boom, like putting all my money into this. I went through a process. So for two years before I even got invited to prison, I was intentionally trying to find my generous hustle. And I wasn't sitting on my hands trying to find it. I talked to and interviewed everyone that I could who was unfulfilled 
and then people who had found their calling. I was reading autobiographies of people who really inspired me. Like when I, I read the autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. And I believe he started his movement when he was 27. I was 26 when I was reading this stuff. And I was like, whoa, this guy's already changing the world. He's only one year older. Like, what am I doing? You know? And so with everything that I had, I was looking for my next steps. And I started saying no to a lot of things. And I started, for example, I started saving money like never before because I had a sense that maybe God was calling me to something greater. And I didn't know what it was, but I just wanted to be prepared to jump ship if and when that actually happened. I had no idea what that meant. So because I had been on a two-year exploratory journey, and for example, I went and worked in a Romanian orphanage with HIV positive kids. I was saying yes to all kinds of things that were outside of my comfort zone. And for people who are trying to find their calling, that's one of my best pieces of advice is start saying yes to things that you would never normally say yes to. Because if you keep doing the same old, same old, you're never going to figure it out. If you're not doing what you think you should be doing right now, then guess what? You need to change your patterns and you need to get uncomfortable or you won't find it because so many people say, oh, I want to get there. Well, wanting to get there is really different than being committed to it. So I was committed. I was I was journaling, praying, reading books for an hour every single day on the side of my private equity job. And anyway, I, after my first prison visit, it still took me nine months to move to Texas. I started out at first commuting, like going to prison on a monthly basis. And the first thing I ever raised money for was 400 bucks from the guys at my private equity firm to buy donuts for guys in prison. And I was so excited about that. And I didn't know how to fundraise. I didn't know how to start a nonprofit. I started taking nonprofit classes. It was a journey. But yes, I went all in. I had $50,000 in my savings account when I was 26 years old. And I put every last dollar into starting what I did. And when I moved to Texas to start this thing, everyone, parents, friends, everyone thought I had lost my mind. But I had such a strong sense of conviction over the nine months that this consumed my heart. And I actually tried to pawn off the work to other people because other people were telling me that I was wasting my time with people in prison so I tried to like hire somebody because I was really good at raising capital. So I was like, I could raise money to hire somebody else to do this work that people are saying is beneath me. I'm glad I didn't. Wow. You know, there's a, as you're talking, I'm reminded there's a phrase, I don't know who said it. It said, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. What do you think it is about you that allowed you to make this sort of Big step. I mean, I understand that it was well thought out and gradual, but it's still a big risk and a big step and a big commitment to helping others. The way that I'll describe this is for your listeners who believe in heaven or a higher power, and if you don't, sorry, but like I do. And so I believe that if I'm going to live, if my soul is going to live on for another billion years or whatever, and that life is but a breath on earth, and it's just 80 years, I want to live the most intentional life possible. And I don't see my time on this earth as being about me and my things and my pleasure. And don't get me wrong, I'm not Mother Teresa. 
I do a lot of things that I really enjoy that are for me. I was seeking a way to use my talents and my skills and my money and my connections to make a greater difference in the lives of others. And I get so much fulfillment out of that. And now that I've been doing it for 15 years, even with the extreme pain that has come from it, I would do it all over again because it's just what I believe is the right thing to do. It's a life that I want to live. I don't, I don't really care to live a life that is centered around my own enjoyment or happiness. That, that is so brilliant. That's, that one description is so terrific. How, how, talk a little bit about generous hustle because you've used that term a couple of times. Your new uh, venture is called Hustle 2.0. What does that term mean to you, generous hustle? I'm a natural-born hustler, as are so many of the people that I serve. And um, hustling, hustlers don't sit on their hands. Hustlers don't wait for things to happen to them. And nearly everybody that I meet in the world wants to live a fulfilling life. They want to know what the point of their life is. They want to live more meaningfully. And if you don't hustle to find that calling... You're pro- it's probably not going to land in your lap. It's going to take some uncomfortable exploration. It's going to say, you have to stop saying yes to some things. Like if you're spending two hours a day watching TV, you could cut that out and instead make a list of the intentional leaders or role models that you want to be just like when you grow up and start reading their stories or listening to their stories. I mean, listening to this podcast with all the inspiring people that you have on here, Frank, is a great step for people. If they want to become more like them, then, but don't just listen. Don't just be a spectator. Just like when I went out for the wrestling team, I could have sat there and watched other people become wrestlers, but I got up and I just started running. And I guess I have always been willing to make a fool of myself. When I was running laps around with the uh, wrestlers, the football players were out there like jeering at me, making so much fun of me. So if you if you want to try something new, you're going to fail. And most people are so uncomfortable with the concept of failure that they're not willing to take that risk. And maybe you could start by taking small risks. And I never tell people, okay, just go jump ship from your job and stop providing from your fa- for your family and go to some other country or whatever. It, it doesn't work that way. But intentionally, daily, it, maybe if, if you're a single mom working a job or two, you don't have two hours a day probably to spare. But you know what? You could have 15 minutes every day that you can take to listen to something or to read something. And then most importantly, to take what you heard or read and turn that into action that takes you one step closer to whatever that purpose could be. Wow. That's phenomenal. What's so PEP has been a huge success, continues to be a success. Yeah. That's a Texas organization. 15 years later, I'm really proud of it. And then defy ventures, continues to be a success, correct. correct? Yep. And in each case there was a you get this started and you know as often happens in the business world and also in the charitable world, you know you get conflict, disagreements, you move on. 
What's the resilience after the first successful launch to start again, after the second successful venture to start again? What's that fuel? Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, well, so to cut to the chase, I have... Uh, started these three organizations. I've been through two divorces, and now I've been through two public scandals that have been very difficult for me to work through. At, after both scandals, the one that I had in Texas and the one that I went through a year ago after my exit from Defy Ventures, I didn't know that I would make it. I actually, I didn't want to be on the earth anymore. I I nearly took my life. Um, I'm not. I'm not proud of that. Um, but I've been through bouts of deep depression, and especially because I'm a very purpose-driven person. When I thought that my ability to live my purpose was over, I didn't. I didn't want to stick around anymore. And I'm grateful that people still saw value in me when I didn't see value in myself, and they loved me back to life. By the time I got to my second scandal after Defy, I had already written my book that had just launched. And part of it is about how to get through crisis and how to come out the other side. So I was allegedly an expert in crisis management. And something really different that I did that helped me with my resilience to start Hustle 2.0 is after my first divorce and scandal, I felt so ashamed that I hid my head in the sand. I I didn't reach out to people who could have loved me back to life. I, I ended up doing that, but later. And I wish I had reached out earlier and seen that people would have loved me just for me. I used to think that people loved me because of my ability to generate great results and to be a strong leader. And I didn't know that people would love me just as a human being. Through my second scandal, I reached out to people every single step of the way and I cried and I shared my challenges and I shared my hopelessness with people who were right there with me and people who believed in me and people who painted a vision for my future. And this is the same thing that I do for people in prison. And the number one reason that I think people don't go back to prison with us is because we're able to help them to paint a picture for a vision of success. And in my lowest points of my life, I was able to surround myself with some great people, some of the most influential, most respected business leaders who walked with me, not caring about their own reputations as they walked with me. And they said, Kat, you don't see it right now. You can't see above the clouds and through the darkness right now, but you're not done. You have a lot more to offer the world. And when really smart people still were investing time and resources in me thinking that I had a future, it made me think that maybe I did. A year ago, I was falsely accused of extraordinarily painful things ranging from embezzlement to misappropriation of funds and lying about results to every sexual allegation under the sun. And I couldn't believe that the things that I was being falsely accused of, but I had a choice and I realized it right there that I could 
suck my thumb and feel sorry for myself or be angry or try to write the record. But one week after my resignation, I went back to Pelican Bay State Prison, which is a supermax that I work in. And the warden welcomed me into his office and he said, welcome to the club. Do you want to know how many allegations I've had against me this week? And then I went into the gym and there were more than 100 men there. And I was sobbing because I felt like I had nothing to offer. And one of them stood up and they said, he said, Kat, we believe in you and please get it together and find your happiness because our happiness depends on your happiness. And what I realized in that moment is that as bad as I thought I had it last year, many of the people that I work with were convicted as children will never get out of prison and they're still choosing to be positive and optimistic and hopeful and they are doing everything they can to make a positive difference. Like some of my guys who are never getting out raise money for breast cancer walks and they raise they raise money for foster children. They find a way to live their generous hustle even though they've been dealt a bad rap. So seeing their resilience inspired me to get through to the other side so that I could continue with this work. I had a choice there. Do I want to drown in self-pity or anger? And one of my greatest mentors, a guy named Seth Godin, who got me to write my book, um, Seth said to me, Kat, you have a choice right now because I was so angry. And he said, a lot of my book is about forgiveness, actually. And he said, you can choose forgiveness right now and just move on with your life so that you can live a life of love and service, or your heart can be occupied by your anger for every day of your life. But you probably can't do both. And so I chose to do that. And I chose to just move on. And instead of fighting for my rights, I'm spending every day now. I'm honored by the awesome work that I get to do with Hustle 2.0. So describe that a bit. Describe a bit what Hustle 2.0 does. I actually moved out to Pelican Bay for the first six months of this year, and Hustle 2.0 was born at Pelican Bay. The guys there named it. I work with some of the top gang leaders there, and the reason is that just like biz- the business world is influenced by top CEOs, the prison world is run by gang leaders, and I have I have been blessed to have the buy-in and the trust of people who have been known as the most notorious gang leaders across groups and they agreed to come together and it looks like a united nations meeting there where people who may not have always gotten along understatement have chosen to come together to write extremely powerful curriculum and it's not my voice it's their voices And they're writing the most positive messages on transforming your hustle. And like, for example, we have a course that mirrors the Freakonomics study about why drug dealers live with their mamas. And in their own voices, top gang leaders are telling their communities to stop engaging in this work because the average drug dealer on the streets makes $3.30 an hour. It's the stupidest, most dangerous job out there. And those are not my words. Those are their words. And so, for example, we have gang leaders writing courses now about depression and about healing from abuse. 
And typically in prison, you never talk about depression or abuse because that's showing weakness. People get stabbed for showing weakness. And now these top leaders, they're changing the narrative. And the curriculum is funny, hilarious in their language. It has like our own Mad Libs are called H2O Libs. It's filled with jokes because our intention for the curriculum is to get the people who are least interested in programming to want to program. And we've succeeded in doing that. So we, we target the most violent institutions, the most violent yards, and we see that hope is a cure for violence. And I've never been prouder of anything that I've ever done. This curriculum is so freaking cool and meaningful and deep and it's, it's holistic in nature. So it's not just entrepreneurship, it's um, employment related. It's how to talk to your kids and be a better father from behind bars, how to prepare for the parole board, reentry planning. It goes in depth and they get about 300 pages a month of curriculum and training. For listeners who want to learn more about this and what you're doing, where should they go? What are the best sources? So they could email. If you want to come to prison, we'd love to have you. And you can... Um, I've you can... definitely got that on my... Something I got to do. All right. Well, now now that um, now that we have a recording of you saying that, Frank, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, count on absolutely. you. And maybe you absolutely. could announce to your listeners when you're coming to prison. And we can plan for idea. that in advance. And yep. then people could yep. uh, sign up to come with you and me. And uh, I promise I'll keep you safe. The programs that I have started have brought more than 7,000 CEOs, investors. And you don't have to be a CEO or an investor to come. And it will not only transform the hustle and the lives of other people, it will transform some of your own hustle as well. You'll see this is not like some down and out poor guys in prison, like hug a thug type of trip. Like you're going to come in and you're going to serve as a business coach, as a mentor. You're going to look at resumes. You're going to give feedback. It's really intense. It's actually really, really fun too. You're going to leave energized. So if you want to be a part of that, you can go to our website, hustle20.com, H-U-S-T-L-E-2-0.com, or you can email volunteer at hustle20.com or stay tuned on when we have another upcoming trip. Right now we're serving predominantly in California prisons, but we're starting to speak with other prison systems as well because they're interested in the curriculum. And we're just a startup, but my goal is for us to get to offer our curriculum in every prison in America to anybody who wants to access the curriculum. That's phenomenal. So I've got one last, is very general question, but I loved, I, I read this you were describing a, a choice or making a decision as a choice between a feeling of safety and the magic of fulfillment. I wanted to ask, what does that feel like to you? What does that fulfillment feel like? I feel alive when I see other people coming alive. And at our graduation ceremonies, we have family reunification programs and when I see the way that our fathers love their children, because yes, our fathers made grave mistakes, terrible decisions, and they chose to leave their children when they got incarcerated. They want to show their children that they love them. And then when we have these graduation ceremonies, our dads are in their caps and gowns for the first time in their lives. And then 
I've always negotiated with wardens in advance to get these little teddy bears approved and the dads decorate teddy bear t-shirts for their kids. And then they get up on the stage with their teddy bear in hand. And then they call the kids up to the stage and the father gives a teddy bear, which is more symbolic than anything, but it's also a physical representation. When they say, I love you and I will never leave you again. When I see the opportunities that we are creating for good fathers, good mothers, when I see families reconnect, when I see that for these children or these mothers who have been praying for their sons for all their lives, when I see that magic, it's everything worthwhile. That's so, so amazing. It has been an incredible privilege to talk with you, Kat. Thank you, and thanks for sharing. Boy, that's a lot of wisdom, a lot of wisdom and passion and learning and resilience. Thank so, you, Frank, for using you. no, your hustle and voice to create so many crazy <laughs> good turns, so much goodness yeah. in the world. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Kat Hoke. What an amazing story and an amazing person. Again, you can find out more by going to hustle20.com. That's hustle20.com. I hope you check it out. Our show is recorded at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Thank you, Greg and Cooper. Our editing by Stephen Key and Score a Score in LA. And special thanks to our production team of Brian Sabin and Megan Hanley. Until next time, this is Frank Blake thanking you for listening and celebrating another crazy good turn.